Awesome. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we are in week number 6 of a series called Welcome to Cross Point. And in this series, we've been teaching through the seven core convictions of our church. And our reasons for doing so have been really simple. Number one, if this is your church, the goal of the series has been to remind you of who we are. I mean, you know, like I know, we're in a season of massive change and transition currently. And so I thought it would be really important as we navigated this season of change to remind us of who we are as a people, because that's the one thing that isn't going to change, right? This building's not going to distract us from who God has called us to be. Amen? We say it all the time. The church is a people, not a place. And so just because we're in a new house doesn't mean we're going to become different people. So that's first. But then secondly, if you're new to our church, the goal of this series has been to welcome you or introduce you to Cross Point. You see, we know that anytime you visit a new church, you leave with a ton of questions. And so one of our goals has been to answer a lot of questions for you through this series so that you know exactly what you're getting yourself into if you decide to come here, all right? And I'll just be really honest and tell you, I think you'll know after today. Like I think after today's message, you're going to be able to figure out whether or not Crosspoint is the church for you. You see, today, you're going to learn about our greatest concern. And just so you know, our greatest concern here at this church is not filling seats on Sundays, all right? Uh, that's not to say we don't take these gatherings really seriously. I mean, we do. Uh, we want to do everything we do here on Sundays with excellence because we believe that matters to God. It matters to people. Uh, we believe that these gatherings are critical to the spiritual health and unity of our church. But this, filling seats, is not our greatest concern. Our greatest concern is getting people out of their seats and into the world to make Christ known where he's desperately needed. And so listen, at the risk of losing some of you this early on in the message, let me just be brutally honest, okay? If you're looking for a church where you can come and kick your feet up and relax and do as little as possible to advance the kingdom of God in our world, you're going to struggle here. You will. And, and I'm telling you, people at this church who've been here for a while and love this church, they'll tell you the same thing. You're going to struggle because we will be on you constantly to get up, to get your hands dirty, and to get busy doing kingdom work so that you can live out your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that reality is captured in our conviction for today. The conviction is this. We're all in full-time ministry. Come on, I've been looking forward to preaching this the whole series. We're all in full-time ministry. And here's how the description reads. We believe our God is ascending God. He sent his son to save us and his spirit to empower us. And he now sends us into the world to carry out his mission. This means the work of full-time ministry is not reserved for a few paid professionals, but for every follower of Jesus. We've all been given the responsibility of doing priestly work, acting and speaking on God's behalf. Therefore, we will live as sent people, going and naming Jesus in dark places where he's desperately needed. Now, to really unpack and make sense of this conviction today, I really felt the need to review with you the big story of the Bible. You see, I've often found that a lot of people in churches read the Bible wrongly. They either read the Bible a lot like they read the newspaper, you know, like 
They just kind of flip through it and find the stories they like while avoiding the parts they don't really like. Um, or they read this book as if it's nothing more than a book of principles. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm going through some stuff, and so I could really use some good advice. Let me see what the Bible says. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm facing some things, and so what's a principle I can hold to? And, and look, while this book is a book full of principles and good advice, the Bible's so much more than that. This is a book of good news. Amen. It's a book of the good news concerning what the God of the universe has done and is doing and will continue to do to restore and redeem all things back to the way he originally intended them to be. And the danger of failing to see the Bible as that one big story is this. If you fail to see it as one big story, you're going to miss your part in the story. And if you miss your part in the story, you're going to miss out on God's purpose for your life. And so it's important to know the story. And the story goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He took what was dark and formless and void, and he filled it with shape and beauty and life, and he declared everything that he made very good. During that same seven-day stretch, God also made man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his image and then he gave them a commission. He basically told them, listen, I want you to rule and reign over the earth in such a way that my kingdom and character is put on display throughout the earth. Well, we know they did okay with that for like two chapters, right? And, and then in chapter three of the Bible, they failed miserably. They rebelled against God, deciding instead of ruling and reigning under God's authority, we're going to rule and reign in his place. And as a result, sin and all of its consequences came to live with us. The entire world came under a curse and wickedness and evil increased upon the face of the earth until God finally decided enough is enough. You get to Genesis chapter 6 and, and we see God sending a flood to wipe out mankind. But he saved one guy and his family, Noah. And in saving them, he gave them the same commission he gave to Adam and Eve. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Image me. And again, they did okay with that for a brief period of time, but they too rebelled. And so yet again, we see sin and wickedness increasing upon the earth until in Genesis chapter 11, it kind of reaches a climax and you find a group of people attempting to build a tower to heaven at a place called Babel. And that seems really strange on the surface, but this was yet another attempt of mankind to rule in the place of God rather than under the authority of God. Well, God responds and he confuses their languages and out of that the nations are born. When the very next chapter of the Bible, Genesis 12, God comes to this pagan dude named Abram. Doesn't know God. He's just minding his own business. And he says, Abram, I'm going to use you to father a nation of people. This nation is going to belong to me. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. I'm going to bless them. And I'm going to use them to bless all the families of the earth. And when you keep reading the book of Genesis, you find this nation, this people group coming into existence. Fast forward to Exodus, it's about 400 years later, and this nation is living in slavery in Egypt. And so again, God decides enough is enough, and he raises up a deliverer named Moses and supernaturally saves his people. Well, as Moses is out in the wilderness, like kind of wandering around, fleeing from the Egyptians, God comes to him and he says, Moses, there's something I need you to tell him. Uh, there's a message that I need you to give this nation. And in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, here's what God says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is so powerful. Uh, God is getting ready to enter into a covenant with this nation. And he tells them, listen, if you'll do your part, like keep your side of the contract, you're going to be a possession of mine. I'm going to treasure you. Not only that, but you're going to be a kingdom of priests. And come on, 10 o'clock, what do priests do? It's really simple. They help people to God. That's all a priest does. I know for some of us, we think of a priest and our mind goes in a million different directions. All a priest does is minister on behalf of God to help people to him. God's going, that's what you're going to do for me. And you're also going to be a holy nation. I'm going to set you apart from every other nation in the world. And I'm going to use you to put my character, my kingdom, and my glory on display. And so you keep reading Exodus and you find God giving the law to these people through Moses so that they would know how to live as a holy, priestly people. Uh, you, you get into the book of Leviticus, and you find God setting up the sacrificial system so that these people can make atonement for their sins if, in fact, they failed to live holy lives. In between that, God gives them instructions to build a tabernacle so that his presence could literally come and dwell amongst his people. And then you keep reading the Old Testament, and you see God finally giving these people the land he had promised so that they could have a place to live and to rule from. Now, come on, wouldn't you think that after God did all that, these people would get it right? I mean, he did so much to ensure that they would actually fulfill the purpose he gave them. But what happens? They rebel, just like Adam and Eve, just like Noah, this nation of people. They decide, instead of ruling and reigning under the authority of God, we're going to rule in place of God. I mean, God in his grace even sends prophets over the course of a few hundred years to warn them, don't go down this road. Things are going to go really badly if you keep heading in this direction. Yet they ignore those prophets. And as a result, the people are exiled from the land. The very presence of God departs. Their temple is destroyed. And this nation of people meant to rule and reign over the earth ends up being ruled and reigned over by foreign nations. Now, if you were God at this point, what would you do? I think most of us would probably agree, I'd be done. Those people are morons. I've done all I can do. I I don't know what what help I can offer. But the God of the universe, out of his great love for us, does the opposite. Instead of giving up on us, he pursues us in the person of Jesus Christ. The very son of God wraps himself in flesh, and he comes to live among us as a humble servant. He lives the life we can't live, a life of holy perfection, imaging God rightly in every way. At the end of his life, he becomes the perfect sacrifice, dying in our place for our sins to buy us back to God. Three days later, Jesus conquers death and the grave, raises back up to new life, defeating sin, death, and hell forever so that you and I could know new and eternal life with him. And then about 40 days later, ascends back to heaven where he takes a seat at the right hand of God and is currently ruling and reigning today as king over the universe. Now listen, between that resurrection and ascension, Jesus gave his disciples another commission. You see it in Matthew 28. He says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. And, and I'm sure that was easy for them to believe because they saw him dead on a Friday and alive on a Sunday. Now, of course it is, right? And so here's what I want you to do. Go into all the world and make disciples. 
Make other followers of me. Baptize people. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you till the end of the age. Jesus says, go, but then he turns right back around and says, wait. I want you to go, but just don't go yet because I need to send someone. You see, I'm going to leave, and after I leave, I'm going to send another helper, another comforter, someone just like me, but he's not going to come and walk beside you. He's going to live inside of your bodies. This is the Holy Spirit we're talking about, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to give you the power you need to be my witnesses. Well, 10 days later, it's the day of Pentecost, and the disciples are still waiting. They're hanging out in this house, and and all of a sudden, this sound like a rushing wind starts to fill the house. Fire begins to fall, and it separates out into what looks like little tongues, and it comes to rest on the disciples. And these Galilean men all start speaking in known languages they didn't previously know, And all these Jews from all these different countries around the world start hearing the mighty works of God in their own native tongues. And then our boy Peter speaks up, a fisherman, a disciple of Jesus Christ, the one who denied Jesus before he went to the cross. This brother gets up full of the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and are baptized in one day. And listen, in that instant, the church was born. The church was born, the same church that you and I are a part of today. And please don't miss this. The purpose for the church is the same as it was for Adam and Eve, the same as it was for Noah, the same as it was for Israel, the same as it was for those disciples 2,000 years ago. You and I have been called to live as holy, priestly people so that the world around us can see Jesus Christ through us. Which, my friends, look up here. Which means we are all in full-time ministry. Listen, to make my case further, what I want to do is just teach on one verse out of the New Testament today. And I really wrestled with where to go today But I just sense the Lord keep bringing me back to this passage. And and what I'm not going to do in our time together is give you a bunch of stuff to do, all right? You're in full-time ministry, so do this and do this and do this. I'm going to give you a little bit to do. But more importantly, I want to tell you who you are today. Because I believe if you know who you are, that will change your entire perspective on how you live and what you do. And so check it out. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what the Bible says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What a powerful, powerful verse. The guy writing this is the same Peter I told you about just a moment ago. The same Peter who preached that message on Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. Uh, Peter is writing this book as a letter to a group of Jewish and Gentile Christians who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Specifically, they were living in an area called Asia Minor, which in our world is modern-day Turkey. And the reason Peter wrote is because these Christians, this church, was facing intense persecution. They were living in a culture very hostile to their faith, and so Peter wanted to say to them, stay strong, Like, don't lose hope. Don't give up. God is with you. God is for you. And one of the ways that Peter encourages them, and this is what we saw in the text we just read, is by reminding them of their purpose. 
You see, it's so easy to get discouraged in a culture that is hostile to your faith when you forget the very purpose for which God put you there in the first place. And I gotta be honest and tell you, I think this is why so many Christians struggle so much in our culture today. I mean, you know like I know that American culture has changed drastically over the last several years. Uh, As Christians, we are no longer the moral majority. I don't think we have been in a really long time. And again, our, our culture tends to think of many of our beliefs as old, dumb, outdated, intolerant, bigoted. We're basically living in a post-Christian society that has decided they know what we believe, they don't need it, they don't want it. And far too many Christians have responded to that with fear, with fighting, with hostility. I mean, we have Christians nowadays that that seem to be putting more hope in politics and politicians than in King Jesus himself. And all it's doing is pushing a culture that is already far from God further away. My friends, I just want to remind us today that God did not put us here as his people at this point in history to fight with culture, to walk in fear of culture, or to freak out as if Jesus is still in the grave and not on his throne. Right, God put us here to put him on display. And if we're going to do that rightly and effectively, especially in a culture that is growing each and every day more hostile to our faith, we have to remember our purpose. And Peter captures that purpose beautifully in the verse that we just read. I don't know if you caught this. I hope you did. But Peter uses much of the same language that God uses for Israel in Exodus 19 to describe the church, us. And here's what he says. I'll just recount it for you. He says, the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Let me just say it again. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. And I just want to walk us through these. All right, so first, we as the church are a chosen race. So listen to this, just as Israel was chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth, you have been chosen by God to be a part of his church. In the same way that God chose them, he chose you to be a loved son or daughter in his family. And I know for some of us in the room, that raises a big scary question, right? James, are are you saying that God chooses us, we don't choose him? Like this is that old Calvinism, Armenianism debate. James, is Crosspoint one of those Calvinistic churches? Listen, I don't have time to unpack that whole debate today. So let me just say this, okay? And and you need to hear this. You cannot choose God unless God first chooses you. That got barely any amen. So let me just keep teaching on this because I want to help you, okay? Let me say it again, and then I'll explain. You cannot choose God unless God first chooses you, all right? The Scripture's clear on this, very clear, that as a person who is spiritually dead, stuck in sin under the wrath of God, that you have no life or freedom in yourself to choose God. The Bible teaches that unless the Holy Spirit of God moves upon your heart, convicts you of your sins, opens your eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is, you'll never choose God. This is why Jesus says in John 6, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. The Apostle Paul takes it a step further in Ephesians 2 and says that even after God draws you, God has to give you the necessary faith you need to trust in Jesus Christ. It's not like God draws you and then you decide, all right, well, let me muster up some faith. 
No, God gives you faith as a gift so that you can trust in his son as the savior that you need. And so to answer the question that some of you are asking, does God choose us? Absolutely. Are we then responsible for choosing God? Absolutely. How does all that work together? You tell me. I mean, here's the reality. We can sit around and debate this all day long. And people do, and people have for centuries. Like, there's a lot of people that still argue about this all the time. And I just have to be real and tell you the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility is one that you and I simply cannot comprehend with our tiny little finite minds. What we can know with complete clarity and total confidence is this, that as the people of God, we are a chosen people. And since that is true, look, since that is true, we should be the most humble, grateful people on the face of the planet. You're a chosen race. Number two, Peter says that you are a royal priesthood. This is where I'm praying that some of your minds will start to explode, all right? You're a royal priesthood. So in the same way God called Israel to be a priestly people, he calls us, the church today, to be a priestly people, And on a really practical level, here's what that means. And I just need you to look at me for a moment because I want to know that you're hearing me. It means that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're a priest. You're a priest. 10 o'clock, you hearing me out there? I need you to know. You know Christ. You are a priest. And I know what some of you are thinking. James, no, I'm not. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm not a priest, dude. I'm a teacher. Uh, I sell insurance. I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm in the medical profession. I'm a student for crying out loud. Yeah, I get that. But what you need to get is that while that might be your profession, that's not your purpose. You see, there's this beautiful doctrine in Christianity called the priesthood of all believers. It surfaced in a very powerful way during the Protestant Reformation back in the 16th century. At the time, the Catholic Church had created this massive divide between clergy and laity, okay? You basically had the priests who were upheld as the very spiritual, important people who had this uh, important, unique, special relationship with God, and then you had everybody else. Well, some old dead guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin started speaking up, and they started saying, this isn't right. Like, nowhere in the Bible do you see such a divide between clergy and laity, In fact, every Christian holds the office of priest because of Jesus. Well, since that time, here's what's happened. Unfortunately, the church has continued to drift back toward that divide. And in a lot of churches, it's assumed that there are some special people who've been called by God into full-time vocational ministry, and those are the important people, the really spiritual people, those who have a special relationship with God, and then there's the rest of us. And as a result, as a result, guys like me, pastors, are often treated as if we are on a different spiritual level when we're not. And I got to tell you, I experience this all the time, sometimes in very ridiculous ways. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was at the gym, and I'm a CrossFit guy, so we don't have any air conditioning in our gym. Summer's brutal, like we just suffer through it, but I'm leaving, and I am disgustingly sweaty. You know, it's like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And a buddy of mine's walking into the gym. He shakes my hand, pats me on the back, and he realizes I've got this brother's sweat all over me. And, and he says to me, at least it's holy sweat. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And so I just laughed and I said to him, you're giving me way too much credit, all right? Now listen, I appreciate the love and respect. I really, really do. And, and I do understand that as your pastor, God has placed me in a position of spiritual authority in the church. But look, it's not a position of authority that allows me to lord or rule and reign over you. Like, dude, I'm a shepherd. That's all I am. I'm a servant. And I know that if I want to lead this church well, I better be serving well. That's all I am. I also understand that in eternity, I will have to answer for things that no one else in this room will ever have to answer for because of what I did in teaching this book and leading this church. But you need to know that if you know Jesus Christ today on a spiritual level, there is no difference between you and me. Like you have the same access to God as I do. You can approach him at any time, just like I can, confidently and boldly, and just talk directly to God. Like if you need your sins forgiven, you don't need to come to Pastor James. You just go right to Jesus. If there's somebody in your life that needs prayer, don't bring them to the pastor. You pray for him. Why? Because you're a priest. You have the same access as I do. But listen, you also have the same responsibility to minister to people on behalf of God as I do. Like I know that that you think at times, well, James, you're the guy that speaks on God's behalf. You're you're the guy that teaches the Bible. You're the guy that, that does the work of ministry so that people can come to God. Yeah, but you do too. You're just as responsible as I am. And our ministries look entirely different. I know that. I mean, I'm here in this building a lot of times preaching and leading and meeting and counseling, and you're at your office. You're at the sales meeting. You're at the job site. Uh, Students in the room, you're at your school, right? Uh, Some of you, you're at home in your living room with your kids every day. Our ministries look entirely different. But please hear me. At the end of the day, we are all in full-time ministry as priests in the kingdom of God. You're a priest. You're a priest. I need you to know that. The third thing that Peter says is this, that we as the church are a holy nation. We're a holy nation. That word holy in this verse simply means set apart for a purpose. So in the same way that God set Israel apart for the purpose of revealing his character and kingdom to the world, he set you apart, me apart, us apart to reveal his kingdom and character to the world. And because God has set us apart for that purpose, it means that you and I have to live differently from the world in order to fulfill it. See, there's a really dangerous lie that a lot of Christians and churches are starting to buy into these days, and it says this, that in order to reach the world, we must be like the world, that if we want to effectively engage the world, we must accept what the world accepts. That's garbage. Nothing could be further from the truth. And just in case you're in doubt, I want you to know Jesus agrees with me, okay? Matthew 5, 13, uh, Jesus says, he calls us as his followers, He says that we are salt of the earth. He's using a metaphor here to teach a really powerful lesson. And you salt lovers in the room, you're going to get this, okay? You know that when you add salt to meat, it does two things. It brings out the best flavors that are contained in that meat. But it also slows down the decay process that that meat will go through if left right exposed. And so the only reason that salt does that to meat is because it's chemically different from the meat. Are you tracking so far? 
Like if salt is chemically the same as the meat, it has no effect on the meat. It fails to serve its purpose. Jesus is saying the same is true for you in the world. As my followers, you are salt of the earth. That means that, number one, you are meant to bring out the best in the culture around you. And you are supposed to slow down the decay of culture that is happening due to sin. But the only way that you and I can do that is by being different from the world around us. But if your life looks the same as the world, your life will have no effect on the world. Your life will fail to serve its purpose. You and I have to be different if we want to be the people God's called us to be. And so the question is, what does it mean to be different? What does it mean to be holy or set apart? Well, it just means that we're like Jesus. That's it. You want a simple definition for holiness? Just write the name Jesus beside holiness. Right? That's the benchmark. It's what we're aiming for. The goal of our Christian faith is Christ-likeness, and to become Christ-like is to become holy. I need you to know, though, that becoming holy is not something you do on your own. Okay, you can't get out of bed tomorrow morning, Monday, and go, I'm going to be holy today. Good luck with that, all right? Like, it just ain't going to happen. No, the way that you become holy is it's not by picking yourself up by the bootstraps and just working really hard to be a better person. No, the way you become holy is by laying your life down in surrender to the Holy Spirit of God each day that lives in you. It's when you say to him, I'm yielding to you today. Here's my life yet again. Holy Spirit of God, work in me, change me, make me more and more like Christ. And then the Holy Spirit goes to work in the backstage of your life, and he starts transforming you and making you more like Jesus and less like the world. And as a result, the world around you starts to see more of Jesus in you. That's how you become holy. Now, let me say this quickly, and we'll move on to the last point, all right? I want you to know that if you decide to take holiness seriously, you're going to take some shots for it. You will. We live in a world right now that loves the kind, gracious, non-judgmental version of Jesus. But our world is not too fond of the Jesus who tells the truth. And just so we are clear, Jesus did both while he was here. He always met people in grace, but he always shared the truth. Jesus loved sinners. He befriended sinners. But at the same time, he loved sinners so much that he refused to leave them in their sin and instead called them out of their sin into a new and different way of life. Listen, I'm telling you, you start doing that, some people aren't going to like it. doesn't matter how loving or kind you are. For some people, the moment you speak up and share the truth, you're getting attacked. But here's the deal. We have to share the truth anyway in love and in kindness. Why? Because ultimately the truth of the gospel is what sets people free. That's what changes everything. We are a holy nation. And then finally, Peter tells us that we are a people for God's possession. That we are a people for God's possession. So in the same way God took hold of Israel and he declared, these are my people... He's taken hold of us, the church, and declared over us, these are my people. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul, he touches on this. Here's what he says. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's Paul reminding us. 
that our lives don't belong to us. Why? Because the God of the universe who created us, when we were dead in our sin, helpless, hopeless, unable to do anything for ourselves, that God paid a price to buy us back to himself. Out of his great love for us, he gave up the life of his very own son, Jesus Christ, to bring us out of spiritual darkness and into spiritual light. And because God has taken possession of you in that way, Paul's going, you can't just do what you want to do. You can't live however you want to live. I mean, parents in the room, this is like when you tell your kids, uh, hey, as long as you're living in my house and eating my food and wearing the clothes that I buy and watching the TV that I pay for, you're not going to do whatever you want to do. Why is that? I heard an amen. Thank you for that. (laughs) Every parent should have said it. Why? Because as long as they're under your roof, in essence, they are your people, right? Can't just do what they want to do. Well, the same is true with you and God. If you know Christ, the God of the universe has bought you, and he has put his own spirit inside of you to mark you, to seal you, and to empower you for your priestly purpose, which means you don't do what you want to do. And so the question is, what are you to do instead? Well, Peter answers that question for us at the end of verse 9 when he says this. That as the church, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Here's what Peter's teaching there. He wants us to see that priestly people proclaim the praises of God. This is what they do. Priestly people proclaim the praises of God. God chose you. He set you apart. He purchased you for himself, made you a priest. Why? To send you into the world to live a life of praise to him. That's your full-time ministry. Like if you know Jesus and you go, what do I do in life? That, that's the ministry God has called you to, to live a life that honors him, that, that makes much of him, that puts him on display in undeniable ways. That's your ministry. Practically, that means that wherever you go, in whatever you do, with whomever you're interacting with, that you do what a priest would do. That you speak and act in such a way that people around you start to see and know how good and gracious God truly is so they might experience for themselves what God has done in saving you. You're a priest. You're a priest. Listen, as we close, I'll share a quick story and then we'll pray. Uh, This past week, I went out to lunch with a buddy of mine from our church. And uh, he's a lawyer, by the way. Sounds like a start to a really bad joke, doesn't it? Pastor and a lawyer go to lunch together. It was a good lunch. But, but at one point, we started talking about Sunday, and I was telling him a little bit about what I was getting ready to preach on. And so as we're sitting there eating, I, I looked at him and I said, Joe, I know you're a lawyer, but you're a priest. Like before you're a lawyer, dude, you're a priest. And he smiled at me, and he said these words, I really like how that sounds, but I don't feel worthy. And I would imagine that some of us sitting here today feel that way. Like you've listened to this entire message and you're going, dude, that's incredible and that's amazing and it's hard to believe. Um, I like that, but I don't feel worthy of that. I don't feel qualified for that. I don't feel equipped for that. Can I just tell you, if you don't feel worthy, that's okay. You're not supposed to. You see, when priestly people feel unworthy and unqualified, that's what keeps them dependent upon the Lord. 
And so if you don't feel worthy today, you are right where you need to be. And I just want to remind you that walking in your priestly calling has nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with what God has declared to be true about you. And what has God said to be true? You're chosen, treasured, loved, bought with a price, priest in his kingdom, set apart for his glory and the good of the world. And he has given you his word, self-revelation, so that you know who he is and who you are. And he has filled you with his spirit to give you all the power you need to walk in that calling. And so as we pray today, I just thought we'd pray and ask God to help us remember who we are in Christ. Will you join me right now? Just heads bowed, eyes closed all across the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they come, I have to imagine that there are some of you sitting in the room right now who walked in today without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like there's never been a moment in your life where you have personally put your faith and your hope and your trust in the God that we've talked about today. And you know who you are because you showed up today with no joy, no peace. You question your purpose in life. You don't know really why you're here in the first place. And even when you think about what's going to happen after you're gone, you have no idea what happens to you when life ends. If that's you, I just want to remind you again, the God who created you loves you so much so that he gave up his own son to buy you back to himself, to make you a son or daughter in his family, to give you a new life now and eternal life with him later. Listen, if you need that hope, if you want to live for the purpose for which you've been created, right now in this moment, why don't you just pray and, and say something to God like this? Just tell him, God, I know I'm a sinful person and I get that my sin is keeping me from you. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take care of all that. And so God, right now I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I believe that he died for me to pay for my sins. That he rose from the dead so that I could be made new. Have eternal life with you one day. God, I'm asking, would you forgive me of all my sins? Take hold of my life. God, put your spirit in me and make me into the person you've created me to be. God, I say yes to a relationship with you. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed all across the room, if you just pray that with me, I want to ask if you'd do me a favor. Just wherever you're seated, would you just lift your hand, floor or the balcony, just, just lift it real high. Our prayer team, thank you so much. I see your hands going up already. Our prayer team's going to come and place a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, just keep it up. They're coming. As soon as you receive it, you can just place your hand back down. Anybody else? If we haven't gotten to you yet, just throw it up real high. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else? Awesome. Praise the Lord. Father, for the rest of us who are sons and daughters, God, help us to be the priestly people you've called us to be. God, I know that there have to be so many doubts floating around in minds today, um, fears, questions. 
God, some of us are probably held back by certain things we've done or decisions that we've made or maybe by people in our lives who've constantly told us that we're not good enough, we're not worthy enough. God, my prayer is that you would help us to believe today what you say about us. God, I pray that our identity would be founded in nothing more than your word to us, your son, Jesus Christ, your spirit that lives in us. God, help us to be those people who speak and act on your behalf so that this world can see how good and beautiful you truly are. God, we need your help for that, so would you help us? God, we pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.